Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. She reinvented women's clothing several times. She reinvented designer perfume. She reinvented handbags and accessories. And along the way, she reinvented herself, too. The end. Let's talk about Coco Chanel. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1883, the first electric lighting system using overhead wires began service in New Jersey. The magazine Ladies Home Journal and the book Treasure Island were both first published. The Amsterdam World's Fair and the first U.S. vaudeville theater both opened. The Orient Express made its first official trip from Paris to Istanbul, and Tsar Alexander III was crowned in Moscow. The first machine to manufacture entire shoes was invented. Franz Kafka, Rube Goldberg, and Benito Mussolini were all born. Lydia Pinkham and Sojourner Truth both died. And on August 19, 1883, Gabrielle Chanel was born, and the fashion world had no idea what changes were ahead. Gabrielle Jean Chanel was born on August 19, 1883, the second of the six children of Albert Chanel and Eugenie Jean de Vol. She was born in a charity hospital in the town of Saumur. Saumur is about 200 miles southwest of Paris. Papa was one of 19 children, the oldest child of traveling market traders. You know, the kind of thing like a booth set up at a weekly fair. They still do it. Mostly kitchen tools and farm implements in their case. Um, he had gotten a good training in this sort of life as a child, and so when he became a man, he struck out on his own in the same business. Papa was handsome and charming and a bit nefarious, I'm sorry to say. He left a string of broken hearts behind him through the countryside, and in at least one case that we know of, and I'd be surprised if there weren't more cases with this guy's M.O., he left a little souvenir. <laughs> Did you watch Alias Grace on Netflix? It's based on the Margaret Atwood book. Mm -mm. No, there's a very redeemable character. He's He's like the only redeemable male character in the whole thing. And he's a traveling merchant named Jeremiah. And he does exactly what Albert did, except he had a heart of gold. He didn't, you know, <laughs> leaves a trail of broken hearts and babies. But this guy is super handsome. So in my head, that's who I was imagining mm. for Albert is this super handsome, so kind, except Albert wasn't. <laughs> well, Albert had gotten in there under false pretenses, I think. He had rented a room from a man named Martin Duvall, whose younger sister kept house for him and for their uncle, but she lived at their uncle's house, but she was over there every day. And so when Albert took off to parts unknown in 1880, he left this sister, this Jean, in a very bad situation. She was pregnant and she was 16 years old. And so her family organized a posse I'm sure there's a French word that's not posse. I don't know what it is. Uh, un group? I don't know. To get hold of him. Okay, so even the mayor is in this posse. I mean, there is going to be a marriage by God or they would have him in front of a judge, which reminds me so much of Lydia Bennett and the Bennetts in Pride and Prejudice, you know? Uh. Um, yeah, the, the damage has yeah. been done and now we have to put the Band-Aid on it. So ultimately, they did track him down over 100 miles away. And rather than let her male relatives handle it, Jean, eight months pregnant, snuck off to meet up with him. Imagine his delight <laughs> by being confronted with a super pregnant girl he sort of medium remembered from some village half a year ago, kind of. 
Um, no, he would not marry her, in fact. Uh, he put his foot down. But if she wanted to stick around, he saw no problem with pretending to be married to everyone. A faux marriage. And she agreed to it. I mean, he accepted paternity of the child, and that was their firstborn, Julia. And they just looked married. <laughs> he well, couldn't her- actually do it. He couldn't put a ring on it. Oh, God. Well, her uncle had kicked her out. And she had this baby. I don't know what she was supposed to do exactly. So she did stay and put her whole freaking future in the hands of this guy. I'm pretty sure she mm-hmm. was in love. Like only, you know, teenagers can be in love. We've seen that the second child, Gabrielle, was born in a poor house while Papa was out on the road. Now, Mama was helping him with his booth and she cleaned houses when he was away. And this happened to be one of those times when he was away. Yeah, she really dragged herself and her one-year-old Julia, her infant, to this charity hospital to give birth. And after the birth, she was so exhausted, she couldn't go on to the part where they filled out the birth certificate and the baptismal thing. So what happened is on the birth certificate for Gabrielle, they misspelled her last name. Instead of Chanel, it was Chasnel. There's an S in the middle of it. Even more importantly... On the birth certificate, her name is not Devol because the priest was under the mistaken impression, as the pretense had gone on so long, that Gabrielle's parents were married. So she was given her father's name, which is not what one does in an illegitimate birth situation. No. And on the birth certificate, he was, quote, traveling. So he wasn't, you know, it's obviously he wasn't there. Also on the birth certificate is not the middle name that you see if you, like, Googled Coco Chanel, her middle name when you do that, is bonheur, which means happiness. And she had this whole backstory about how the nuns gave it to her at her birth. But the reality is that happened later in life when she went to change all her birth papers to the correct spelling. She added a middle name that was fancy. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I mean, that really sets the tone for how this woman is going to handle life. If she doesn't like what's happening, she just fabricates this glamorous story or uh, sometimes entirely credible is backstory and as the truth. But in reality, it wasn't even close to the truth. Well, so back to the little family, her uncle, the one that had kicked Mama out so long ago, said, you know what? I'm back on the scene now. I've gotten over it. You can come live with me if you you wastrel, marry your mistress and make her a respectable woman. And he agreed very reluctantly. And on their wedding day, he was a no-show. <laughs> that <laughs> is embarrassing and heartbreaking, really, for someone who's in love. And her family kind of coalesced to pressure or bribe him to go through with it. Respectability was that important to them. They weren't on the bottom rung. They were on the rung right above that. And anything that would push you down to the bottom rung of society had to be avoided. Respectability was that important. So ultimately, they gave him a dowry. And it's hard to transfer francs to dollars, but I'm thinking it's about $25,000 in today's money. Um, With the idea that he could open a shop and stop being a peddler and a dirtbag and be a solid citizen. But they're going to give it to you only when the ink is dry on that marriage certificate. They they gave him like a signing bonus, like at the beginning, like a down payment. And then the rest came after he actually got married. And of course he put it down on a respectable business, right? No, he didn't. He drank and he gambled it all away pretty darn quickly, too. Over the years, four more children were born, though the youngest boy died as a baby. So we've got five living children to deal with, three girls and two boys to raise. 
And there was this pattern that emerged. Papa taking off. Mama leaving the children with relatives to go be with him. Then we'd send for the children. Then where's Papa? Rinse. Repeat. It was a very <laughs> unstable, rickety way in which to grow up. The parental units were very hands-off in the raising of these children. You know, they were around, obviously, for the conception and the birth. At least one of them was. And after that, it was like the kids were almost on their own. A hard life for little children. Well, Gabrielle took to hanging out in a nearby graveyard during the staying with relative times, um, maybe the first emo. She took some refuge in her imagination. Like many sad and lonely children, she would talk to the people in the cemetery and make friends of them and imagine what they were like. And she felt abandoned and resentful. And who can blame her? Honestly, not me. She was known in the family as the bad one. I'm sorry to say, because, you know, what if no one's paying any good attention to you? You you get bad attention. Chanel herself told some stories, too, that kind of indicated that she wasn't necessarily bad, just kind of like restless, I guess. So one time they were in an uncle's house and mom was about to fly away to find dad. And between them, the older children, one by one, had ripped all the wallpaper off a wall. It made a very satisfying sound coming down. And then it flew in a pattern. And it was like they didn't realize they were destroying a room. They just thought it was a super fun play thing, you know? And by Mm -hmm. the end, when mom came in and looked at the absolute devastation they had made of her relative's house, all she could do was slam the door and leave because there's nothing to be done. There's another one where um, the kids were, again, off by themselves in somebody's house and there was bags of grapes above their heads on the ceiling drying. And Gabrielle had thrown a pillow up in the air and one of them knocked down and, oh, that was so cool. It's raining grapes. She kept doing it the whole way down the ceiling. And Jean came in, looked at what was going on and just burst into tears. What am I going to do with these kids? They just keep destroying all the places that I can put them. You could have hung around. Oh, I know. I know. I'm like in her head. It's like, oh, what am I going to do with you? But in reality, you could have done a lot. So her relatives um, would yell at these kids all the time. Like, you're like gypsies. Obviously, you're half bad blood from your father's side because you didn't get that from us. And Gabrielle felt Pretty ugly and pretty worthless. Um, No one paid her any positive attention at all. And during the last rotation of this family pattern, when Gabrielle was about 11, almost 12, Mama fell terribly ill with a fever and no one knew where Papa was. There was no money for any kind of a doctor person to come around. Um, Mama died of bronchitis. She was only 31 years old. What a hard life she lived. I guess she had suffered from asthma symptoms her whole life, but all that trekking after Albert, dragging him home, repeating, it wore her down. Well, so now what? Well, Mama's relatives had had it, frankly, with being the default dumping ground for these Chanel children. Papa would have to come up with something else. And so he did. His two sons were given to farmers as hired boys, slaves, really, you know, unpaid labor. Like Jerry in Anne of Green Gables was, uh, at least he got to live at home. These kids were just dumped off. They were 10 and 6 years old. Mm -hmm. I imagine, and the odds are, that they were very badly treated. Gabrielle and her sisters, Julia and Antoinette, were taken to the convent orphanage in the village of Obazine and left there. And in later years, Gabrielle would transform this orphanage into a household with strict aunts or aunts in it and give her papa a better story. He sent her presents. He wrote her letters. Oh, he went to America to make a better life. He really loved her. But the fact is, he took them there. He walked away. 
and he never was heard from again. The end. The house that she claimed to have lived in, you know, with these aunts, they had servants and a garden, and she had a very idyllic childhood in the stories. But in reality, she was now this child who had been pretty much raising herself to age 11 is suddenly put into a very strict uh, convent environment. You know, they had very structured days. She did get a little bit of education. She learned uh, reading, math, maybe a little history or geography, but she also learned a lot of, you know, Catholic. It's just like a lot of her education was in Catholicism because it was the nuns that were taking care of them. I think they did take good care of them considering the situation. You know, this was the biggest girls orphanage in the region. And, you know, they had a lot of kids to take care of. But I, I, I don't think that it was horrible, horrible. You know, Charles Dickens horrible. Well, here is an obstacle that you don't think of. Gabrielle had never been to school before. Yes. But what's more, she didn't even really speak French. What? You're like, what? Not French French. She spoke in Patois, kind of a blanket term for, quote, the dialect of the rural people. In in this case, I'm thinking it's Occitan, probably the language of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Seriously. So, Mm -hmm. um, So there's a hurdle right at the beginning. And though the girls did learn French... Gabrielle was never really comfortable writing in French, never ever. And so she hardly ever did do it, which is a bummer for historians wanting to read her letters. They just weren't tossed in the kitchen fire by well-meaning relatives. They mostly just didn't exist. She did learn to read, which was good. Somehow she got her hands on these serialized novels that had appeared in newspapers. I'm guessing she probably stole them. But she would somehow get her hands on these novels and go up to the attic and read these incredible Cinderella stories, basically, over and over again. You know, poor girl makes good, becomes really wealthy, has a dream life. The plot for just about every Hallmark movie there is. That's true. Well, it was just like, well, you mentioned Dickens. This is the era, although kind of the end of the era, of the serial novel that was printed chapter by chapter in the paper. It was to sell papers, you know. And so if you did cut out a chapter every day and then when you got enough, you could sew them together, you could have your own little lurid romance novel with unrealistic expectations in it. That's That's really good. The nuns knew that their girls were not destined for greatness. You know, uh, they were destined for housework, either as a servant or as a farmer's wife, if they were lucky, or maybe as shop assistants. Let's not get crazy with (laughs) teaching them philosophy and poetry and all that jazz. What they need is housekeeping and cooking and sewing. And it was very important to the good sisters that their students make their own trousseau, which is, you know, household linen, undergarments, curtains, towels. They needed to learn to make their own dresses and hours and hours and hours a day were spent on sewing. Later, Chanel remembered embroidery initials on towels and crosses on my night dresses for my future wedding night, which made me spit. (laughs) (laughs) Even after reading all those serialized novels about the poor girl finding the prince. Oh my goodness. So (laughs) at 18, the convent would just normally release your students into the wild to sort of fend for themselves, get a job. I often think about foster kids, even today, who age out of the system like this. They just are sort of shoved into the world. And I'm I'm sure 
I hope there are programs to help the transition. Gabrielle was the beneficiary of sort of a rare such program. She was sent to a sister convent about 100 miles away for further training. But if you couldn't pay, at this convent you had to do housekeeping and serve your non-charity student classmates meals and sit in a separate place at church and wear a different outfit. And it was very clear who the scholarship students were. It was actually the first time that she had encountered this being a have not living with the haves you know she had to dress as she was you know as an orphan as as a charity case for the school but the other girls would give them attitude i guess is the best way to put it yeah fortunately for gabrielle her aunt her father's youngest sister adrian was about the same age as gabrielle i think she was a year older um and she attended the school also as a charity student and they bonded right away and they got along famously they looked an awful lot like each other dark hair dark eyes uh very slim very i think she was about five six which to me seems tall but uh, <laughs> she had someone to a, a friend you know not her sister but a, a friend which was very helpful in a situation like this well they spent most of their time together and would visit gabrielle's grandparents sometimes you know that's aunt adrian's parents she's 28 years younger than gabrielle's papa by the way. Like, she's the youngest of 19. He's the oldest of 19. Right. Adrian also had a sister who lived in the area who, um, unlike most of the siblings in that family who had gone off in the family business as peddlers, the sister had settled down. She'd married the station master in town. And so they would often go visit her. And she was a fairly respectable woman. And she would help the girls make hats and they'd go window shopping. And it was a good entree into retail life that Gabrielle had never seen before. Well, after a year or so at the Moulin convent, both girls got jobs as assistants in a sort of upmarket draper's shop. Um, what is that? They sold full morning outfits, not the morning with the sun. Like, oh no, he's dead. Um, like a place people would go to select their fabrics, you know, fine fabrics in this case that they would make up. And they lived with their employers who were a married couple and it was oh so quiet. Too quiet. So after a year, the friends moved out to their own raggedy Alec apartment and <laughs> took a part-time job to make ends meet. You know how it is in your early 20s, though. You know, some of the apartments you live in. <laughs> so sketchy. You know, <laughs> five friends and I, Susan, rented this condemned Victorian house once and we loved every second of it. Oh, I lived in a couple pretty trashy places, too. But at that age, and I thought that that was actually really kind of uh, modern, you know, the two set off in room together and have all these jobs and start to put together a life for themselves. I you know, wonder not... what they lived on. Mac and cheese, <laughs> we lived on in mistake pizzas from one of our boyfriends worked at a pizza store and like, oopsie. I put the wrong topping, whoop, it'd be at our house. I was a waitress, so I ate at work. <laughs> okay. The freedom was delicious. So as only the 20s can be in this really unsanitary conditions. But um, Gabrielle's Sunday job, her part-time job, was in a tailor shop that specialized in military uniforms and, you know, whoosh, just like that, as Lydia Bennett would say, officers. <laughs> This kind of reminded me of Zelda Fitzgerald. You know, there was a military base near Zelda, and that's where she met Scott. And there was also a military base near uh, Gabrielle, and that's where she met a lot of men. The base was 
for um, a horse regiment, a cavalry regiment that attracted very aristocratic men. The quality of guy that these girls were, you know, attracting were a lot higher than they probably would have in any other situation. Oh, yeah. And they were perfectly willing to buy them ice creams and take them to a show. These kind of off-color reviews, I guess... To the officers, this was probably thrilling slumming. You know what I mean? But to oh, yeah. the Chanel girls, this was the theater. <laughs> <laughs> Gabrielle persuaded the manager of this one club called La Rotonde to give her a chance up on stage. When the headlining act, who was, I mean, we're talking not even like Josephine Baker quality. We're talking way down the line, was singing Behind them would be these women who just stood and posed. They were called poseurs, and they they stood there. And when the main act needed to take a break, they were given an opportunity to step up to the microphone and entertain. They could sing and dance and whatever their thing was. So Gabrielle was drawn to that. She thought this was going to be a great thing. She dragged Adrian with her. If you are a poseuse, your main job is to look hot and draw catcalls. You can say it's a very elevated position. (laughs) Um, And I have to say that Gabrielle was not your traditional sex symbol for sure. She was as straight up and down as they come. But she had that mysterious it factor. We have talked about that before. Clara Bow, nearly the same time period, had Mm -hmm. this very mysterious attraction. You know, half the audience knew who she was from the ice cream dates and the tailor shop and this and that. And so having followers is pretty key, you know, like karaoke. People (laughs) do not sing that well at karaoke but if you bring enough friends you've got a fan club you know what i mean (laughs) that's right and unlike karaoke after they were done performing these girls could go through the crowd and collect tips so it was like another job for her another part-time job oh well her songs brought down the house one in particular um called key kavu coco dans the trocadero which means who's seen coco at the trocadero is about a lost dog okay (laughs) She has another called Coco Rico, which in French, that's what roosters say, cockadoodle do, which seems more rife with possibilities for Ha Cha Cha, this song, like more double entendre. But like mm-hmm. both of those songs have the syllables Coco in them, Coco Rico and Ki Kavu Coco. Um, and so people started to call her Le Petit Coco because really she didn't have any more songs than that. This song, I guess she would sing it kind of suggestively about the lost dog. And it reminded me so much. Brace yourself for an obscure reference. <laughs> and if anyone on earth has seen this movie, you know, you and me, kiddo. No idea. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of a Goldie Hawn movie called The Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox, where she sings a song that's like, you can touch me berries, but you mustn't touch my plums, you know, and it's like all double <laughs> entendre. I'm like, I, I think I've seen the movie. Yes, it sounds vaguely familiar. Not as many times as I saw Overboard, but... <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, there's a brain cell that thought, wait, I'm packing it in. And then it just woke up going, wait, really, me? I'm going to sing this song. You did a great job. That's impressive. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. My nerdity just doesn't have any bottom seller. No. Well, so we'll move forward with the name Coco because she began to be referred to as La Petite Coco or simply Coco. And then people would bark at her. And people would er, 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 at her. I don't know. Whatever. She's famous. (laughs) Again, this is something that later in life, she made up a story that her father used to call her Coco. It was like a pet name that he had for her. In reality, it was a rooster or a dog. (laughs) There you go. And a bunch of drunken military guys. You know, that's not as glamorous, though. (laughs) No. 
no, it's not. <laughs> well, one member of her fan club was an extremely wealthy heir to a wool fortune currently serving in the cavalry named Etienne Bolson. And he became her, shall we say, boyfriend, boyfriend, protector, and likely supported her during a misguided year that Coco tried to make it big on the stage in a bigger town. But the fact is, she just did not have that sort of talent. And so when this Etienne invited her to come live with him as his mistress in his chateau, Royal Lou, which I can't say, but it means royal place. Well, you do not have to ask me twice. Right? No. Well, Adrian had got a deal of her own very similar she had met uh baron baron maurice de nixon and he was very wealthy and he took her in although the difference is they were very in love the two of them his family obviously did not want him to marry adrian but adrian lived with him in his houses and was quite happy actually so coco didn't have anybody to go back to so this invite from atn was you know, sure. Why not? Oddly, Etienne already had a mistress on the premises, the celebrated courtesan Emilienne d'Alençon. And let's just say this was a very eccentric household. His parents were dead, so he doesn't care. He doesn't care about disapproval. This was a house where the guests were not encouraged to bring their wives. This was mistress land. It was house party after house party, respectable in its way. I mean, upper class, anyway. There were horses and servants and a, and a huge library, so that was good. And Coco was notable for two things during this time period. Her horseback riding abilities, for someone who'd grown up as she had, she really took to jumping in polo, was a noted horsewoman, really. And her simple, almost masculine way of dressing, just kind of hints of masculinity, unadorned lines, a man's hat, maybe, a collar and tie with her skirt. Now, I have to say that this movement towards simpler dress was in the air. You know, people's writing habits, even <laughs> earlier than this, already looked kind of mannish. You had a top hat, you had a waistcoat, but still you had a skirt. But it was made right. out of man fabric. So there's a movement toward athletic gear for women moving toward a masculine cut. But Coco had moved toward this instinctively. I mean, even unconsciously. This is only 1908. She is so far ahead of the curve here. And the little touches of man clothes were very sexy. And it's hard to explain, except for if you think about, even now, if a woman in a movie comes out of the bathroom wearing her man's dress shirt, it's like, ooh la la. <laughs> but you know, Coco's outside and this is head to toe. Yeah. I think part of it had to do also with the hierarchy of women that were in the house. The courtesans were jewels and all kinds of baubles upon them. They were businesswomen and they got paid with items and dresses and everything. Whereas Gabrielle was more like a house guest with benefits. Not only didn't she have the body to wear the fashions of the time, but she didn't really have the money for it either. So she had some sewing skills and she had access to ATN's closet and she had a lot of creativity. So she started to dress in these menswear inspired outfits that she was creating for herself. So she was an unconventional beauty. She did draw the eye. And this lifestyle, if you think about it, ask a girl from any orphanage if this lifestyle where there's servants and you sit on a chair and read books all day and you don't do any housework and a dude really likes you and takes you to dinner. I mean, this is almost like life goals here. But the fact is, Coco was restless and she wanted to to make something of herself for real. And she would ask Etienne all the time about her future. What is going to happen to me? Uh, really, living openly with a man in this way had pretty well ruined her reputation as far as the home village was concerned. 
And he would just laugh, like, at first. And when she didn't join in, he's, you know, he was kind of bewildered. Like, is this not enough for you? I don't know how much more I can give you. Um, But after a while, he started to take her seriously, though it took months. Well, you know what? Marry me then. Is this your goal? This is 1908 Lady Goals, right? Marry me then. And she said, I don't love you, though. And he he's like, so what? And so she is serious, you know, stamping her foot. Etienne, I went to work. I want to make something of myself. I want to open a hat shop. Oh, what? Like he (laughs) fell out of his chair laughing. Well, you know, your friends always ask me where I get my hats. She had taken uh, men's skimmer hats, you know, just flat and kind of added feminine touches to them for herself. So the other women that were visiting and lived in the household were actually attracted to these hats because the hats of the time were huge. And she called them enormous pies balanced on heads, monuments of feathers, fruit, and egrets. <laughs> you know, these big froofy hats. And then she had this more practical, but yet still beautiful, simple skimmer hats. And so she started making all these at the house. I'm really only good at writing and making hats. So unless someone's going to hire the world's first female jockey, it looks like you're going to have to buy me a sore friend. he's like no way that is too weird i have a live-in mistress that goes to work you know what no nah nah no 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 and he was not down no come to this castle with me it's a group thing it's fun a bunch of us go every year let's hunt a fox hunt that'll be good right and it was on this trip this trip to the fox hunt to the chateau at pau i don't know how to say it p-a-u that coco met one of etienne's friends an englishman named arthur capel who everyone called simply boy. He was yet another wealthy playboy. The only difference here is his parents were still alive. He was British and he was only first generation money. His father had come up from not much and made a fortune in coal and shipping. And boy worked for a living. He worked for his family's business. And uh, so that's how he was a little bit different. But he was just drawn to Gabrielle and she to him immediately. So Etienne had finally sort of broken on the work issue. Okay, look, my bro and I have this apartment in Paris. Why don't you work out of there? He won't care. You'll see how fast you get tired of this. Get it out of your system. Like such support of dreams, really. Don't you feel the enthusiasm? Yeah. (laughs) But she sure took him up on it. Coco Chanel, milliner, began, actually Gabrielle Chanel, milliner, began to operate out of 160 Boulevard Malesherbe and Etienne just stayed in the country. Hey, who else lived on this road? I asked. Boy Capel, who came by and clapped and sent over his lady friends as customers who took her to dinner and paid for her to stay at the Ritz instead of her shop. And although Etienne asked her to marry him again and called his friend a thief and an adventurer and objected in every way he could, the facts were this. His friend had stolen his girlfriend. (laughs) She moved into Boy's apartment and his life and evidently his heart. The whole Etienne relationship seems like a business arrangement, at least on her side. But this was love, I think, for the first time in her life. She felt secure. Mm -hmm. This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out how that security helped her life.
So we are back, and Coco is in a kind of good place. Her hats are actually causing a buzz. They actually made it into a magazine. Um, One of her hats was featured in this magazine on the head of a fashionable actress. And inside, with pictures of two more hats, was the following caption. I have just written a name which needs to be introduced to those of my readers for whom it should still be unknown. In this column, we show two delightful models by the refined artist Gabrielle Chanel. First and foremost, a lover of the line, her imagination is always inspired and full of surprises and always remains in good taste. Already! That's awesome! It's the same reaction that the women back at ATN's Chateau were giving her for these hats, so it stands to reason that the people of Paris looking for something new would find them. Her love life is going great to the point that Etienne forgave everybody and invited them back to Royal Lou. Just, you know what? Join up with this party again. Who cares? A little <laughs> cast change isn't going to hurt me. Big-minded of him, really. Oh, yeah. yeah. Boy, was very unusual. He was dapper and rich and unconcerned about appearances. And weirdly, like her, he was fond of underdressing in elegant surroundings. <laughs> Which I think is funny. I think he did it to purposely be rude, sort of. Um, <laughs> he drove fast. He loved life. He was completely besotted with Coco. And also, which I kind of think is a red flag, but Coco did not. He was in love with her, what, ignorance, innocence? I'm not sure what to call it, but he was trying to mold her into his ideal woman, which is not awesome from a modern perspective. No. Um, But Coco herself called him the great stroke of luck in my life. She credited him with shaping her into the woman she became, so I guess she was okay with it. Um, He made the famous artist that everybody knows, so I don't know. But I'm wondering if it was maybe a combination of unconditional support, which she'd never had before, Mm -hmm. plus his willingness to kind of be honest with his criticism. Right. And she was in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing, something different. So, yeah, I think it was a combination of all that. And she had been reinventing herself since, you know, since she went to the convent. So continuing to reinvent herself to boys' standards probably didn't bother her too much, right? Oh, I guess so. And I wouldn't mind constructive criticism on the hat thing. But honestly, if he felt like she did something wrong, he would say, you were very badly behaved. I don't want to see that again. Like that kind of thing. Well, I don't know, man. (laughs) Well, but, you know, underneath it all, it was like, I'll be here no matter what. That mistake, even though I hated it, is not you, the person I love. So, you know what? It can go either way, whatever. As long as everybody's happy. Well, he put his money where his mouth was. He financed a store for her, a very fashionable district is where it was located with the fanciest stores you know aim high i think and this is sort of weird and it's sort of very like me coco hated dealing with the customers herself she really didn't like it she brought in her younger sister antoinette to be the front of house (laughs) and sometimes when people asked to see her she literally hid in a closet what's that about Later, she tried to paint it as a positive thing, and she said a customer seen is a customer lost, as if it were, you know, a calculated way to increase her mystique. And I'm wondering if it's thwarted introversion. I mean, I'm right there with you, Coco. (laughs) People are always trying to get in my bubble, and I'm not down. (laughs) No, you cannot get in your bubble, no matter how bubbly you are and excitable. (laughs) That would be me, or you are not. You just like put up a bigger bubble, which is fine. It's cool. I think you were an awful lot like Coco. I know. Sometimes I'm like, why don't I like her? Oh, yeah. 
because she acts just like me. <sighs> sad. Oh, you know what? I know we're all joking around, but there's actually a pretty sad story that happened about right now. So we've got the younger sister being um, beautiful, fancy, front of house, but her older sister, I don't know if you remember that she had an older sister, Julia committed suicide. And family lore is that she rolled around in the snow until she froze to death. Well, since it was May, I really don't think so. I think it was quite horrible and not comedic at all, whatever way she did it. But she left behind a son that was always rumored to be Coco's own son, I think is really her nephew for real. Yeah. She treated him like a son and she supported him. And when he was young, she brought him into their house. It was a weird cobbled together family, but it was, you know, a father, a mother and a son, right? <laughs> well, and ultimately he was sent to boarding school. But if you think about it, that class of of people always went to boarding school at around eight. So it wasn't right. unusual for him. He wasn't like dismissed from their lifestyle. He was just mm -hmm. the age to go to boarding school. And he was sent to boys, former boarding school over in England. So he keeps popping into her life, you know, for the rest of her life. And I guess there's a question is, you know, why didn't Coco have kids of her own? And obviously nobody's going to be able to answer that. There is some uh, gossip out there that she had um, a pregnancy and terminated it. And that made her infertile. But who knows? Maybe she was just super smart and <laughs> didn't get pregnant at well, all. She herself in the 1960s told one of her models that she wished that she had had children. But due to a botched abortion when she was in her 20s, she could never have any. I read it as gossip. So but, cool. you know, she tells yeah. stories all the time. <laughs> So I okay. don't know. I don't think that would be a story she would tell. It's not fitting a purpose. It's it's sad. Right. It's a sad thing that happened. And I don't think she focused on sad things too much. Anyway, it's a lovely time in her life. She's got unconditional love. She's got a beautiful house of her own. She's got a growing business. She's got a man who loves her so much. It's it's a good time, and it lasted for a few years. And she took a bold leap and opened a boutique, a clothing boutique, not just a hat shop, in the uber-wealthy, fashionable town of Deauville. On the awning, it says, merely, Gabrielle Chanel. Coco took advantage of a trend among younger women. Hey, I would like to be able to move in my clothing. Radical. <laughs> she based her clothes, which were made by local seamstresses and stocked, you know, rather than ordered. This isn't a um, couture house. This is, you know, I'm going to stock ready to wear. She based it on men's clothing, dress shirts, chunky sweaters, polo and tennis and the ocean and fresh air, you know, pockets, you know. <laughs> so that's what her clothes were based on, just outside air and practicality. And her marketing was very natural and viral. Two, she sent the fabulously attractive aunt and sister out casually walking amongst the people, the overdressed <laughs> people with the ladies had their Chanel outfits on. And everybody was looking, well, where, where did those come from? And everything looks nice on the models. I'm just telling you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it does. And it was the fabrics were different. She was not doing things in satins and silks and fluffy fit fabrics. She was doing things in Jersey and, and knits. It was just soft on the body and unrestrictive. And unfortunately, if you were shaped like certain women, it looked horrible on you. Imagine your own body wearing a chunky sweater with a belt around the middle and long skirt below it. That's the look. So if you can carry that off, then 
Chanel's clothing was for you. If you couldn't, you just looked a little odd. I could totally not wear her clothing. It looks amazing on other people, but there's no way. <laughs> so um, here's some more marketing for you. Famous artists, um, surrealists, and young noblemen took to hanging around the doorway. Yes, and the buzz was a buzz. Young and fashionable women patronized her shop and told their friends. Simplicity was real style, was the message. You know, lack of fuss was tasteful. Now, I don't know, do you remember this thing in Downton Abbey where the youngest sister came back from the dressmaker with harem pants? Oh, that was one of my favorite scenes. Somebody had posted a picture in the lounge of the Downton Abbey collection. Oh, yeah, yeah. Museum. Yeah, and that outfit was in those pictures. Yeah, I love that. Sybil's radical harem pants. So those were based on an outfit made famous by Paul Poiret, who was another designer kind of shaken up things around this time. Yes, he was simple, but he did things like flowing draperies and harem pants. And um, Chanel later referred to his clothing as costumes meant for men's minds enjoyments. So women were still being presented as an object and not the clothes weren't for the ladies. They were for the men looking at them. Well, let's go back to the real world and not the world of fashion. Out in the real world, Germany declared war on France in 1914. And the closer they got to Paris, the more people fled to their country estates for safety. These are the rich people, the customer people. Not everyone could afford to go to Deauville for safety. Um, and though Boy himself was serving as an intelligence officer, he advised Coco to keep her store open. And she was not unhappy with the taking. In one summer, the boutique made the equivalent of $550,000 in today's money. Zowie. I mean, it was a time when women didn't necessarily have their ladies' maids to help tighten them into their corsets. So these simple clothing that wasn't, you know, attract it's war. You want somber looking clothing. You don't want flashy stuff. It was really attractive to these women and all these people that were staying in Deauville in the area, you know, to stay away from the war. Um, they just flocked to her. So if you think about it, this is like Newport summer money. This is ridiculous. Set it on fire money. These are the customers you want, I think. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And I can't imagine that her, um, her markup, I mean, it was probably pretty high because the fabrics that she used were um, jersey and cottons. She trimmed things in rabbit fur. These are all very inexpensive fabrics. But the way she created her garments made them just look elegant and desirable. So if you have a cheap item to make and you sell it for a lot of money, <laughs> the war did very good things to Coco Chanel. She opened another store in Biarritz, the Playground of European royalty. I guess we're all fleeing to Biarritz also from the war. Must be nice. I don't know. <laughs> so she was famous enough to actually appear in a cartoon in a newspaper. And I always think that if you appear as a clue in the crossword, that's when you know you've made it. Because the assumption is that everyone's going to know who you are. So here she was. That's amazing. In the newspaper. Well, and also her first mention in the American press. Women's Wear Daily, Summer 1915. Gabrielle Chanel has some extremely interesting sweaters which embrace new features. The material is wool jersey. There was like a note of surprise. In most attractive coloring as pale blue, pink, brick red, and yellow. Striped jersey in black and white or navy and white. A great success is predicted for these sweaters. 
And of course, anyone reading it would say, Jersey, like underwear fabric? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like men's underwear fabric for hunting. This isn't even fancy underwear. Like the war had caused fabric shortages for anyone but somebody with an ex who owned a fabric empire. So I'm not even sure it was a fabric shortage that made her do this. Even though she had access to silk and tulle and velvet, she created a craze for simple knitwear. And the more lavish a dress is, she would say, the poorer it becomes. That's her philosophy. And her customers agreed. Because sometimes customers are sheep. If you're authoritative enough, is that what it is? Is that what is in fashion? Okay. <laughs> um, but she was also kind of hedging her bets a little bit because in the new boutique in Baritz, so she was doing evening wear and silks and satins and velvets with hand embroidery. But again, like her other line, it was very clean cut, very simple dresses, simple and elegant. Well, and then these same ladies that eat the fancy dinner would also play tennis. You can sell them more than one kind of outfit. That's kind of radical, I think. Oh, yeah. And they were buying it in multiple colors, mm-hmm. you know. My mother-in-law does this. <laughs> she'll go and she'll buy a pair of pants that she really likes and she'll buy every color that they have. And that's what these women were doing. Maybe it's a wealthy woman thing. <laughs> well, two years into the war, she had 300 people working for her. She did not have the training and background in construction. So you hire those people. You hire pattern cutters, etc. At this time, I want to say that Coco began cultivating what we would now call a personal brand. I am a woman of taste and leisure who directs and delegates, but I don't really set foot into the workrooms, although she did. But it was like a duck, you know, in the in the pond, like underneath. It's all like, oh, my God, I must do this designing. I must do this. Blah, 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 blah. But on the outside, I am a charming and graceful being. I am a cultured <laughs> woman. Do you know what I mean? Like she yeah. really, really tried to separate those things. And she was definitely an independent woman. In fact, ultimately, although she had a setback where she thought she was making money and was spending her profits and it turned out that boy had primed the bank account so she'd have pocket money and she was quite embarrassed. She thought that she had been making these profits. Numbers weren't her game. <laughs> No, not at all. But she was able to pay him back for all of his investments within just a couple of years. So we're talking World War One during the war. She's making enough money to pay him back his investment in her. And guess what he said? Sadly, I thought I'd given you a plaything. Instead, I gave you your freedom. Yeah. Well, now, before the end of the war, Chanel was registered as a couturier. Uh, She had premises at 31 Rue Cambon, five floors of it. She was showing her collections on models, walking um, kind of a prototypical runway back and forth. One of the very first designers to use this technique. And she hung out with avant-garde artists and writers and performers and worked, 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 worked. Again, like the duck. Party girl on the outside, but underneath, she's working through the night. And she said, no, work is the real thing. Money, that is just a mark of independence. Pretty wise. uh, Yeah, I think so. Well, and now I'm sorry to say something really sad happened. So you know that Boy and Coco had been separated by war most of these past three years. And Boy came to her now with some news. He was in love with the Honorable Diana Wyndham. 
a youngest daughter of a nobleman, like a very feminine, conventional member of the British aristocracy. After all this talk of women's power and admiration for Coco's unusualness, which is not a word, her drive, her independence. I mean, I guess not. After all that, I'm getting married. And he did. It, she said it didn't come as a surprise. She kind of put the pieces together. She knew before he told her, but that doesn't mean that it didn't hurt. She was grieving the relationship, even though she still saw him. <laughs> well, she was 35 when he got married. And um, from now on, no matter how many boyfriends she had, and there was a list, she always said, none of them ever mattered because I lost the only one I ever really loved. So, mm-hmm. boy is the beau ideal. He was the one and for her, and he went away. Did he go away? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he did. <laughs> he, uh, he kept coming back. She couldn't stay in Boy's apartment anymore, so she got her own, decorated her own style, you know, with a broken heart, but determined to keep up her facade. Both Boy and Coco had separate breakdowns, by the way. You know, he had a baby, Coco had admirers and lovers, and they both tried to move on unsuccessfully because before long, Coco was in another love triangle. The wife, the boyfriend, and Coco. And on December 22nd, 1919, Coco got the news. Boy Capel had left her house. He like was on his way from her house when he died in a horrible car crash. The car had gone upside down and burst into flames. Yes. And the chauffeur had walked away, but Boy was killed instantly. And if she had grieved the breaking up of their relationship, she grieved this even more. You know, she raced to see him one more time. Unfortunately, his body was so badly burned, she couldn't. The funeral was closed casket. And unfortunately, even more in his obituary, she's not even mentioned. Well, she's not his wife. I know. I understand why, because of society and convention and all that, but they had been together for so long and they had an unconventional relationship anyway, although his widow wouldn't have put her in there, I guess, but uh, still heartbreaking. (laughs) I do find it in my heart to feel sorry for her, too, because, you know, he didn't make a deal. You had every opportunity not to do this. Right, right. But yeah, yeah, you kept it going in the background and that's not good pool, you know? Someone had actually taken Coco to the site of the accident and the car was still there, a burnt out shell in a circle of black weeds. And she sat on the ground and she cried for hours and hours and hours and hours. And she said to a friend, I lost everything when I lost Capel. His death left a void in me. The years have never filled. And then she did a very emo thing, by the way. (laughs) She bought the house that Boy and Diana had been living in. She painted the shutters black and moved into Wallow. Bell Respiro, the name was, which means deep breath. Well, I could not have written that better myself. (laughs) We actually didn't mention what she had done while she found out they were engaged. She got her hair cut. She'd had this long hair her whole life, which was the fashion, you know, wear it up. Think, you know, like Gibson girls and stuff. There's a couple different stories floating around. Either she intentionally went and got it cut because she wanted to look like a boy or she burned it while she was getting ready one night um, on a pilot light and had her maid cut it to bob it so she could go out that night doesn't matter just like a lot of us out there when the relationship ends you change your hair okay so here is something else that's sort of punk rock coco 
bankrolled a revival of Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, which is a ballet that had caused a riot just before the war. It's so famous. Literally, I want you to think of a ballet audience. Close your eyes. Who's there? And you think, oh, sweet, Rite of Spring. It's going to be flowers and rain and bunny rabbits and... No, no, this is the rite of spring where pagans make a virgin sacrifice. (laughs) Also, the music was so weird and new that it had literally caused temporary schizophrenia in the audience. Well-dressed matrons were fighting with each other and pulling hair. People were hissing and yelling and crying. This is the audience. This is not the performers. This is the audience. Radio Lab, the podcast, has done an excellent episode on why this happened neurologically and we'll link you up and coco may have actually have been in the original audience for the premiere but here she is bringing this action back like <laughs> can't wait to see what happens Three hundred thousand francs to bring back that situation yes okie dokie well it's her money she can spend it however she wants there's a spoiler alert here everybody was ready for it this time and nobody freaked out which is kind of sad but i mean everybody you know liked it more this time but you know (laughs) yeah you can only see a scary movie one time and be totally scared at it yeah so the composer stravinsky had hit a bit of a downward spiral career-wise and coco told him you know what move into my house with your wife and your four children, I'm going to go ahead and stay at the Ritz. And almost inevitably, they fell into an affair. Well, he came to see her. He inspired her. She inspired him. And I will say, most of his famous works were completed during this time in her house. He wrote in her house where his family was. And then, you know, she lived at the Ritz where he went to visit her. Um, She said, (laughs) (laughs) she said about herself and Stravinsky, I was self-taught. I learned badly. I learned haphazardly. And yet, when life put me in touch with those who were the most delightful and brilliant people of my age, Stravinsky or Picasso, I never felt stupid or embarrassed. I had worked out that what can't be taught is with what you succeed. So she's like, you know what? This is how everybody learns now in this Mm -hmm. modern age. She was friends with some of the most influential artists and musicians and writers, Jean Cocteau, George Brock, Sati, who's, um, he has a song <laughs> that put my son to sleep every night until he was seven. So thanks, man. Thanks. Man. <laughs> I'll link you up. It worked great. I was uh, one of those people that played, you know, had the headphones on my tummy and I played um, a little CD that included this song was the first song. So, you know, hardly ever get past the first song. Honestly, when you're a parent of a small child, you fall asleep, not even through the first song. So I've heard that <laughs> song a lot. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, the hits kind of kept coming for her. Um, the following year after Boy's death, her sister Antoinette, who had been you know, working with her, had decided to get married. It was a bad marriage. She ran away, hooked up with an Argentinian, went to South America with him. And then when he broke up with her, she was devastated and she also killed herself. Another suicide in this family. Chanel had said of her situation she said how am i the only survivor her brothers were still alive you know the ones that were farmed out literally but all the sisters gone well uh she parted more or less amicably with stravinsky she ghosted him hey i'm gonna follow you on this next boat never did Eh. she moved on to grand duke dmitry pavlovich cousin of the recently murdered czar of russia one of the men who'd killed rasputin 
Seriously, we talked about this guy. A man who, if the throne ever returned to Russia, may have been the senior heir, the next czar. He had dated Consuelo Vanderbilt, episode 9, who <laughs> then instead married Etienne Balson's brother. It's a small world after all. <laughs> You know, it's so crazy. It's like the little ties between all these people. With this man, Dmitry Pavlovich, she took a tour of her old stomping grounds. She revisited her childhood settings, um, the village where she was born, the convent, her old um, graveyard that she used to play in. And some say that motifs in these buildings provided some of her motifs for her clothing, for the trimming. But for now... With that field trip in our mind, back to work. We have come to a critical juncture in Coco Chanel's life. Not a man, not a scandalous piece of art, not even a dress, <laughs> not even a dress. It was a bottle. It was a bottle of precious liquid, likely the reason Chanel's name has remained so famous, in fact. It might have been an introduction from the uh, Dimitri, but she met Ernest Beau, who was the perfumer to the czars. <laughs> um, she worked with him to come up with um, a designer fragrance. Now, she wasn't the first designer to come up with one, but she was the first to have one be so very successful. Uh, her philosophy was that, quote, women tend to wear perfumes that men give them, but you must wear perfume you love yourself and are yours alone. When I leave behind a jacket, everyone knows it's mine. So she wanted to create this modern scent, a clean scent, no florals, nothing that reminded anyone of the perfumes that were on the market and popular at the time. So Bo mixed up some essences of botanicals, some sand rose, some jasmine. He mixed it with chemistry. I, I was trying to, I was so trying to figure out how this was done, but um, there's a synthetic material involved and the scent was clean. It was new and it may have been the fifth one that she smelled because she decided to name it number five. You know, what's weird about this? He himself, Monsieur Beau said that he had brought her vials of samples labeled one through five and 20 to 24. So my question is, what happened to number six through 19? <laughs> if it was number five or if she just wanted to name it number five, she had a mm -hmm. thing for that number. She uh, was very superstitious. She showed her collections on the fifth day of the fifth month. Um, it was considered her lucky number. Her astrological sign is the fifth one. And this perfume was an expensive perfume to produce. Hooray! You know, yes, said Chanel. I would like to create the most expensive perfume in the world. The marketing itself was genius. First, a whisper campaign and then a scarcity campaign. So Cabbage Patch Kids, McDonald's Szechuan Sauce, Beanie Babies, you owe a lot to the instinctive psychology of Coco Chanel. And Chanel number five. <laughs> There's even a mystery about who designed the very recognizable simple bottle. So was it a copy of one of Boy's Cologne bottles, a glass manufacturer's sample design, or a young man she had working for her? Nobody seems to know. The intertwining C's on the lid, and ultimately, of course, everywhere else, is it Coco Chanel or is it Capelle and Chanel? Because the first time anyone saw this was on a commemorative polo trophy that was donated in Capelle's name. Mm. So the whole package made the perfume immortal. Even now, a bottle of Chanel number no. five is sold somewhere in the world every 30 seconds. 
Yes. That is just crazy to me. Do you know, I mean, obviously we must know people who wear it. My mother-in-law does. That's her favorite scent, but I don't know anybody else that wears it. I don't know. You don't wear perfume though, do you? You're not a perfume gal. Um, I am sometimes. I think I have, uh, what is it? Marc Jacobs Daisy on today. Oh, oh, you are. Oh, okay, good. I like Red Door. I always use it. Actually, we went somewhere once and I had a little bottle of it. And you didn't have any, so I gave you some of mine, and I gave you the bottle because you said it reminded you of our trip. I thought Aww. that was so sweet. <laughs> I don't know if you still have it. Well, of course do. you do. It's some. It's in your basement. <laughs> yeah, that house is a one-way street. Okay, so um, the development deal on this perfume caused her great agita. She felt later that she had been cheated or railroaded into giving up most of her profits, but her partners. To, in their defense, knew how to market and sell and manufacture. And they really did most of the work. She had very little to do with the product once it was out. Do you know what I mean? She created it. She picked it. She was in charge of the bottle design. And that was it. And it uses her name. Um, I think in any you know business situation now, that would not seem fair at all. And She, she should at least get half. I would think. Well, I don't know. I guess I don't know the intricacies of the deal, but she got a very small percentage and and it seemed very one-sided. Well, that can wait in the background. That's percolating. Chanel herself, the lady, not the perfume, um, was leading a dual life of working hard and being the darling of avant-garde society. Before, you know, one never hung out with one's dressmaker. Or, in fact, said the word hung out. (laughs) Um, And now she's probably more well-known than you, and you're lucky to be in the same room with her. Mm, Tables have turned. She was a very modern celebrity. People followed where she led. The short hair, sun tanning, bathing suits, jewelry that was obviously costume, the whole flapper aesthetic, the camellia flower, I mean... The trends just kept on coming. She said, fashion does not exist in dresses. Fashion's in the air. It's born on the wind. You can breathe it. It's the sky. It's on the highway. It's everywhere. It has to do with ideas, with social mores, with events. Fashion should express the place, the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, like when people give you advice and there's no like concreteness to it. Oh, yeah. So that's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no steps to take. It's just find yourself in your goal for your goals and blah, blah. And it's like, so there's a lot of blah, blah in there, but it makes sense. It still makes sense. Here's another invention that we still regard highly today. The little black dress, TM. <laughs> I bet we all have an LBD, don't we? Not Chanel, maybe, or maybe. Send us your pictures of your LBDs. But the thing that you grab and go for a night out, that wasn't at all the usual thing. In the Gilded Age, right before the 20s, or really any time at all, black usually meant you were in mourning. That wasn't fun. That wasn't awesome. But Coco looked around at all the peacockery around her and waved her hand and hey presto guess what the ladies all wanted black and coco thought that a black or frankly a white dress drew attention to the woman you'll notice the person not the dress and american vogue called the lbd a uniform for all modern women of taste and this was in 1926 Mm-hmm. Yeah, she wasn't, again, uh, like the perfume, she wasn't the first one to do um, a plain black dress, but she was the first person to do it well <laughs> and for it to catch on. And that's the first one that she had was a, um, a sheath style in a crepe de chine fabric. 
Well, she was still putting out two collections a year. And there is, I don't know how much of this I want to read, but there's a good description of her working technique in a book that I had read. And the highlights of this are that the models would be called in one by one. And Chanel worked from a living person and draped and pinned and cut her outfits. She did not draw a drawing and then make them come to life in some theoretical way. She cut mm -hmm. and fitted on a model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then she would give it to um, her workers who would have to figure out what it was she was trying to get to from this rough pinning fabric. And when they come back at her, she if the sleeve wasn't right, she'd rip it out. She could rip out a sleeve 27 times. Didn't matter. She'd rip it out and send it back. Nope, that's not what I wanted. And she was very particular about, which is kind of interesting for someone who's just kind of draping and you know, not drawing a, a picture. But she didn't even know how to make patterns. That blew my mind. But she obviously didn't need to. A lot of musicians can't read music. They improvise. They create the art in the real world. And I think that's what Chanel was doing. It's just a little riff, a little jazz, mm -hmm. you know. Creative high thing when you feel it in your gut. Yeah. You're totally blowing my mind with this music thing. Oh, yeah? Well, keep your hat on, sister. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just I just had hope because I don't know how to read music. Oh, I'm, I'm musically illiterate. I'm ashamed to say I've never played an instrument. Well, if you think about it, everyone can sing and you don't <laughs> have to know how to read music in order to sing. And if right. you know the mechanics of playing an instrument, you can make a tune. And okay. most people will suck, but some people will make good tunes that way. <laughs> And that's just what Chanel was doing. Most people that decide to get a bolt of fabric and drape it are going to suck. She happened not to. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I can imagine it's a frustrating. If you're like the pattern cutter or the people that had to sew it and like you put in your time and trained and learned how to do this thing, this whole like, I guess you probably left. If, if you couldn't work this way, you'd be out, you know? Yeah. At one point, she got rid of sewing machines. She wanted everything hand stitched. So that makes that even more heartbreaking when she rips out a whole, you know, seam that you just hand stitched. There might yeah. be a lot of drinking at work. <laughs> well, they were in Paris, so. Oh, there you go. Perfectly acceptable. That's right. Well, so um, when the show happened also, she would watch from the top step of her staircase, which has mirrors all along the wall, sort of hiding, just like in the old days at the hat shop. Isn't that just intriguing. So she was able to see, but not really be seen. And she was still kind of hiding from the results of her labor, from the people that were enjoying her work. She didn't want to see them. Mm -hmm. Then we come to the Duke of Westminster, Hugh Grosvenor, perhaps the richest man in Europe, definitely richer than the King of England, who wooed Coco and won her. Uh, everyone called him Bendor, which is a delightful callback to the family crush from the 1300s. You know, like everybody does with their nicknames. <laughs> of course. Oh, no. Chanel was catapulted into the highest levels of society. Her work was already there, of course. And now Chanel, the personage, had her finally arrived there, too. This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens when she was catapulted into that society.
And we are back. Coco is in the lap of unbelievable British luxury. Let me just tell you. A man richer than the king is your boyfriend. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So it was through these circles that she met Winston Churchill, and they developed quite a friendship. In fact, right when Winston Churchill met her, he wrote back to his wife, Clementine, she is very agreeable and strong, being fit to rule a man or an empire. Benny's very well, and I think extremely happy to be mated with an equal. At last, her ability matches his power. That's very astute of him, I think. Well, it's Winston Churchill. It's kind of one of his things, right? As for Coco, what was his attraction? Oh, well, she was a woman who liked to do the things that he liked to do. She was extremely outdoorsy. I mean, when they first met, they fished for like two months. You know, she was just hauling in salmon and stuff. So she liked to do the things that he did. That's And she was intellectually equal. And financially, she was, you know, a woman who was self-made. You know, she was very well off. So I think that was the attraction. Well, she told um, one of her friends that he had the, quote, shy simplicity of a king isolated by his circumstances. See, are we sure she didn't study poetry? Because that sounds very poetic to me. That does. It does. <laughs> Um, he bought her houses. He bought her jewelry. It was a glorious lifestyle on multiple continents. And she thought maybe at last she was living in those romance novels that she used to make out of serial newspaper stories. And so together. It was nice. It was good. He was the weirdly anti-Semitic I was noticing. I mean, many upper class people, many of them had a violent distaste for both Jewish people and homosexuals. Especially this guy. You know, and Chanel was swimming in these waters. Ironic, given the fact that I think Chanel had girlfriends and boyfriends. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, Definitely. so he had a dark side, too. So it's not all glorious. But, you know, he was a man of his time. But here's the thing, though. The Duke wanted a male heir. That is why he had divorced his second wife. He wanted a male heir above all else. And at the beginning of their relationship... Coco was 44 years old, and she did follow the advice of doctor after doctor, you know, no dice. Like we said before, she told someone later when she was in her 80s um, (laughs) about a botched abortion in her 20s that probably caused her to be infertile. But she did try. She did everything she could. And eventually that fact or more likely just Coco's drive for her work drew them apart. They were still friends and Coco had made valuable connections. She had also, like a lot of the relationships she had in her life, she had taken things about that person and put them into her designs. When she was dating Dimitri, the Duke, she had her designs were kind of Russian inspired. And at this point, while she's dating the British guy, she was adding uh, Scottish tweeds and cardigan sweaters, of course, worn with pearls. Mm-hmm. Um to, to her style. So that was the thing that stood out to me is all these guys had an influence on her designs. Well, yeah, you just take inspiration from the life you're living. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, but it's so easy to see it. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that was me. Thank you so much, Universe, for handing me some knowledge. I didn't have to work at it. <laughs> That's good. Well, so it is time to try something new. And Hollywood came calling in the personage of Samuel Goldwyn. And he decided he wanted her to dress his stars for his movies. Well... Isn't that a good advertisement uh, all over America and the world? Hollywood, that's a big deal. Clara Bow, Lillian Gish, this new kid, Catherine Hepburn. I find it so funny, by the way, that Coco got there and sort of hated Hollywood in particular, the movie industry, um, which if you think about it, 
is the polar opposite of simplicity in lifestyle and appearance, you know? Yeah. And just to get her there, he paid her like $2 million yeah. to come out and, you know, dress his stars both for the screen and for events. And, you know, the overarching theme is that her clothes didn't translate well to the big screen. And someone put it very well, I think. Chanel dressed a lady like a lady, but Hollywood wants a lady to look like two ladies. <laughs> You know, it was a fun experiment anyway. Uh, and who's laughing? She has $2 million. Yeah. She was here and then she went back and she went back through New York. And while she was there, she went to all the big department stores, you know, Macy's and Gimbel's and Saks and Neiman Marcus. You know, she's going to these stores and seeing how they work. And it was kind of giving her a little inspiration for her business back home, too. She got the money out of it. She had a horrible experience in Hollywood. And then she got this other businessy souvenir to bring back with her. So it wasn't a trip for nothing. That's true. So Coco Chanel brought a lawsuit against her perfume business partners. She had never gotten over the fact that she could only receive 10% from those sales, even though her name was on it. These men, the Wertheimers, responded by kicking her off the board of her own company. Mm-hmm. Ouch. Yes. And another little thing that's happening, she had had a ski accident and was given morphine. And at this point, kind of right when this lawsuit was happening, Coco became addicted to morphine. Um, I guess that happens a lot even now where you receive it for a legitimate reason and then your body gets addicted and, and it's a problem. Even worse. How about this for a little downward spiral? That's not good. The 30s brought competition. A radically radically different designer named Elsa Schiaparelli was taking the fashion world by storm. Remember, she made Wallace Simpson that evening dress with the crazy red lobster on it. Um, <laughs> we've already talked about Schiaparelli. It was more of the same. Hot pink, fox fur, buttons shaped like fish, boobs were back, y'all. The 30s are so much more me than the 20s. <laughs> <laughs> um, Coco, who had been operating on high for so long all alone, now had a serious rival for King of the Hill, and Chanel became the conservative choice, and Chaparelli was for the avant-garde and the daring, and she did not really know how to handle it. There was a party that they were both at, <laughs> and Chanel dared Elsa Chaparelli to dance with her and steered her into the candles where she caught on fire. Her dress caught on fire. And here's the quote. Chaparelli was put out by delighted guests squirting her with soda water. The incident added enormously to the anecdotes about the party that provided Paris with conversation for many days. So this fight was a delightful spectacle to everyone. <laughs> the times were a-changing all over the place. France's workers had staged a massive labor strike, and now they had their rights to things like a 40-hour work week, two weeks paid vacation, wage increases, and the right to organize into a union. And Coco was absolutely infuriated by this. Like, kind of unreasonably so. Her thought was, how dare they? They're lucky I allow them to work here at all. And I think that's the modern sentiment of the CEO, actually. Yeah. Well, she had like 4,000 people working for her at this point. I mean, it was a big company. So yeah, that would affect her. Well, Hitler was on the march. Europe was gathering storm of conflict. It did take a couple years for the rumbling of rumors to become the rumbling of tanks, but it was on. It was on. War was declared 
uh, in September 1939, and Coco immediately shut down her empire. She just closed up everything except for the one boutique at 31 Rue Cambon, which sold jewelry and perfume. That's it. That's the only store that was open. Everything else ceased operations. So 4,000 people were instantly out of work. And obviously, the events of three years before... Uh, all the workers' rights things were pointed to as a cause. It's retaliation, said some. She's realizing she's old news, said others, you know, because of the fight with Chaparelli. And even the government stepped in because 4,000 unemployed suddenly on the eve of war is not a good thing. Um, you know, won't you work for the good of France? Can you reopen? And she's like, no, I'm done. I'm done. It's callous. But when you're done, you're done, I guess. But a large segment of the working population did not have good feelings about her, let's say. No. No. Um, the ripples spread out. Friend of a friend who used to work there. The name got a little bit of a not good connotation to it. The brand got blemished. Is that Correct. what you're trying to say? <laughs> yes. I mean, not among the customers, but among the lower <laughs> classes who worked for her. Right, right, right. Which is pretty important, I think. Yes. She consolidated all of her living arrangements and um, all of her possessions and kind of hunkered down in the Ritz with all these other society women, including Chaparelli, who was also at the Ritz during World War II. After the oh. occupation of Paris by the Nazis, Coco lived at the Ritz among German officers who had requisitioned the hotel. People were saying, you should probably not live there. And she's like, they're going to requisition them all. I'm going to stay in the good one. Yeah. So while she was trying to get information about the whereabouts of her nephew, we haven't seen him in a long time, he was actually, she thought, a prisoner of war. Um, she met and began an affair with Baron Hans von Dinklage, who turned out to be a Nazi spy. And I'm sorry to say that recently declassified files reveal that Chanel was working with the Nazis. Her mm -hmm. code name was Westminster, after her former anti-Jewish boyfriend, the Duke, and old Agent F7124, as she was known, had one main mission, Operation Modelhut, which means model hat, um, given to her personally by Heinrich Himmler, the man most responsible for the Holocaust. This is serious. This is mm -hmm. not a joke. Well, the mission was that she was supposed to deliver a letter to her close personal friend, Winston Churchill, and persuade him to end the war with Germany. Now, the mission failed, but not because of anything Chanel did or didn't do. There were logistical problems. Churchill was ill, didn't probably even intend to meet her in this very suspicious location. And also, someone on the mission got cold feet and ran and tattled to the British embassy about Nazi operatives in the group. So, failed mission, but still, that's, you're a collaborator. <laughs> Definitely. It was a decision that she was going to have to um, own up to for the rest of her life. Another thing that she tried to do at the time is get control of her company back. Uh, the Nazi laws of Aryanization prevented any Jewish ownership of businesses, and her business was 90% owned by Jewish people. The wartimers who had fled to America because they were Jewish. So she wrote a letter trying to get control of her business back. Smartly, 
the Wertheimers had transferred the ownership to a non-Jewish friend before they left for America. So she had nothing to stand on in that particular argument. So that's two failed things that happened during this Nazi occupation of Paris and her involvement with the Nazis. I think that last thing is desperate and dirty. I'm serious. Yeah. Well, she was, you know, I think her whole life, she kind of was very opportunistic and she kind of, you know, there was like a little crack open. She kind of dove through it, which served her very well. But I think, you know, she was trying to use the laws to her advantage financially, which, you know, still happens in this country. If there's a law that's going to get your company more money, of course, you're going to try and make it happen for you, right? Oh, I, mean, I guess so. Just think about it. I mean, it's it's still a thing. And so I think that's what she was doing. But again, failed. So that part is not so secret. The first part, you know, we didn't even know till the 1990s. So they also saw that she had a car and gasoline through the whole war. Hmm, how did you get a car and gasoline? So there may have been formal or informal information gathering, definitely some of what was called horizontal collaboration, <laughs> uh, which after the war meant a shaved head and public humiliation for many women. I read a statistic that there were 80,000 half German babies by the end of the war in France, but not for Chanel, this public humiliation. When the Germans retreated, von Dinklage asked her to flee with him, but Coco refused. You know what? I'm going to face whatever this is that's coming. And she was arrested by the new French government. But unlike her fellow upper class horizontal collaborators, she was not taken to jail. She did not serve months or years in jail. She was released almost immediately. It was likely Winston Churchill who'd asked for her to be spared. I mean, he's the savior of Britain. He's the glue of all the allies. You know what? Anything you say, sir. This one woman, I mean, he sent people to try to find her to save her from being arrested in the first place. They just didn't get to her before that happened. Yeah. Yeah. But she was brought up on uh, for trial on espionage charges. She would just denied everything, everything they asked her, even things that were obviously true. She just denied it all and nothing could stick. So she was cleared of it. Nevertheless, she moved to Switzerland. <laughs> I know. She packed up the Mercedes with all of her stuff and she moved to Switzerland where she stayed for eight years. <laughs> I know, though, Von Dinklage lived with her part of that time, which mm -hmm. is not prudent. Mm -mm. No, not at all. <laughs> he stayed with her until um, he left to go paint nudes in some Spanish island somewhere. <laughs> like you do. She had also um, bought a house for her son slash nephew, Andre, and his family. Unfortunately, he was suffering from tuberculosis at the time and very ill, but the family was near her. So she was kind of like, what, granny? I guess. <laughs> granny Coco in Switzerland. Um, it, it was kind of a retirement for her. She took long walks in the woods. Um, she entertained friends who would come and visit, um, of course, until they started to die off. And because she's getting older, she worked with a writer on her memoirs. She crafted another line of perfumes. Legally, she could not sell any more perfumes because of her arrangement with the Wertheimers, but she could give them away. So she was creating perfumes and again, secretly marketing them by giving them away to her friends, you know, the owner of Gimbel's and the owner of Saks and the owner of Neiman Marcus. And hey, how about Samuel Goldwyn? He could use some of this perfume too. Well, she did negotiate successfully with the Wertheimers for a better deal on the original perfume. And it was in their interest to not have a bitter court battle because what do they have? The name Chanel should be associated with magic and not court battles and mudslinging. And so Coco was now a multimillionaire. Again. She had left kind of a vacuum in the fashion world and Christian Dior kind of filled it. He just 
blossomed. I mean, and his designs were completely different from hers. They were big and dramatic. She said of this time, fashion has become a joke. Designers have forgotten there are women inside those dresses. And about Dior specifically, she said, he doesn't dress women. He upholsters them. Oh, yeah. The big skirts, the padded jackets, every artificial thing, the corsets that Chanel had been against. That was not her philosophy. And she watched with just itchy fingers. Balenciaga also, these interlopers. Oh, And at 71 years old, Chanel returned to France. She reopened her couture house and got to work on one of the most anticipated collections there had ever been in Paris history. (laughs) You know, fashion editors and the elite of society crowded in to see Blurk. Is what it was. I mean, like <laughs> after it was over, there was uncomfortable silence. There was the non-meeting of eyes. Huh. Well, okay. See you around. Thanks for inviting me. Bye. <laughs> and um, somebody wrote, what everyone had come to see was the atmosphere of the old collections that used to set Paris agog. But none of that was left. Ouchie, ouch, ouch. Like it's not her collaborationist reputation. It's actually the clothes. But wait, there's more. An editor from American Vogue disagreed with The Room, and she chose some things from the show to feature in an issue of the magazine. There were three outfits. um, This kind of dark pink drapey dress with pearls, a crazy strapless evening dress that was like bright navy blue with bright red roses all over it, and the classic, a navy jersey suit, mid-calf skirt, very classic lines, very flattering to the female body and easy to move in. And the rest was history, especially in America. Yeah, she could. I mean, she's in her 70s. She easily could have hung up her scissors and really gone into retirement, but she didn't. She just kept coming out with even fresher collections. Um, she debuted the iconic quilted handbag. She added chains to the hems of jackets so that they would lay flat. She was dressing for the woman's body and the way that the women moved, like she always had been. But her designs were, again, contemporary. And in The New Yorker, America could not get enough. In The New Yorker, here's this. We've met some formidable charmers in our time, but none to surpass the great couturier and perfumer Mademoiselle Gabrielle Chanel, who came out of retirement to present a collection of dresses and suit designs that have begun to affect women's styles every bit as powerfully as her designs of 30 years ago. See, now she's dressing Grace Kelly, Elizabeth Taylor, Catherine Deneuve, Jackie Kennedy. Like, what do I wear in bed? Chanel number five. Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) But you know the 60s, the later 60s, times were a-changing again. And Chanel took again to a defensive mode, and she railed against the miniskirt, again, the modern and stark fashions, on TV even, in an interview. We can link you to that. If you speak French, it's not subtitled, but I'll link you to it. She uh, did not speak very kindly of her fellow designers. They were not very happy with her and her um, criticism. I'll tell you that. She was making no friends with her antagonism. High fashion is doomed, she said, because it's in the hands of the kind of men who do not like women and wish to make fun of them. Does she mean gay men? I wasn't sure. Oh, going back to, oh, her, I don't know. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Hmm. Well, who are the kind of men who do not like women? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's... Well, I would take it as that they 
dress them without thinking, like you said, without thinking of the woman inside the dress. They don't care about the women themselves. They just care about being flashy and different and bold, regardless of how it wears. Got it. I guess. That's how I read it. Like all of Project Runway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she became sort of lonely and bewildered in her later years. I feel so alien to everything around me, she would say or... She would pat someone on the arm and say, sometimes I do realize I'm ridiculous. Huh. Well, she'd become an institution and not so much a person anymore. You know, it was Mm -hmm. a tough place to be, I guess. Yeah. She was still living at the Ritz. She lived along well, you know, with her butler and her maid, who she called Jean, after her mother, even though that wasn't the maid's name. Um, She had a personal secretary and, you know, they would play cards with her. Um, But she had a routine. She was working. She kept working. She'd come home at night, play cards, and then she would take her scissors, her ubiquitous scissors she always had with her, and cut her pills that she needed to take at night um, out of their little blister pack. And she'd take those and then she'd give herself a morphine shot so she could sleep it's still i mean she's still addicted to it um it's obviously it was helping her but unfortunately as she got older she started having nightmares and sleepwalking she would grab those scissors again and cut up her pajamas while she was sitting at her dressing table very very sad she started injuring herself at night so badly the scissors the sleepwalking, the falling down the stairs, the door, that her staff began to strap her into her bed at night. Yes, she became very erratic and talked about death and the soul and what you leave behind and loving work and needing work and hating work. And every night she would dread what she called the evening anguish. I don't like that. That makes me feel sad. Well, one night... Coco told her maid she was very tired and she laid down on her bed looking out at the full moon fully dressed and suddenly she called out to her maid that she was suffocating and she kept saying the window the window and she had her hands across her chest in pain and the maid gave her a shot of morphine and Coco said so that's the way one dies the end those were her last words and she was 87 years old her funeral was held at the Iglesia de la madeleine so you should pronounce these french things you're so much better at it i just said later that week her funeral was held in a parisian church <laughs> okay good it was near um the rue cambone several hundred mourners packed into the church the first row was saved and filled by her models who had pitched in all together for a giant floral arrangement that was on her casket that was shaped like scissors. They were all wearing Chanel, Yves Saint Laurent, Salvador Dali, Jean Moreau, the actress, all there to pay their final respects to Coco. Well, her fellow designers, even the ones that she had insulted so dismally, were there to pay their respects, most of them, despite her strong attempts to discredit them, because she was an icon of fashion history and they owed her a debt. They owed their careers to her in part. So um, they were big men and forgave her at the end. Uh, Chanel, by her wish, was buried in Switzerland. The French hate me, she said. I need to feel safe somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of the life of the woman, Coco Chanel. But the company does live on. As you know, Chanel is one of the most recognized names in fashion. And designer Karl Lagerfeld took over her mantle. And that's M-A-N-T-L-E. One of only two appropriate uses of the L-E. 
If you got a fireplace, it's E-L. That's all I'm saying. I'm on a mission. Anyway, he continued the collections afterward. The perfumes, of course, never lose popularity. I would make a very bad dead person, she once said, because once I was put under, I would grow restless and I would think of returning to Earth. And she hasn't. I don't think she's returned. <laughs> Even though you are quite a lot like her. Hmm. And now it's time for media. And as usual, we'll start with books. And, you know, the stack of books <laughs> could reach the ceiling. There are a lot of books about Chanel. There's a lot. There is. I Sometimes we have subjects that it's really hard to even find a biography on them. It wasn't hard to find any for Coco Chanel at all. Okay. The two that I narrowed down to be my two favorites are Coco Chanel and the Pulse of History by Rhonda Garlick and Coco Chanel and Intimate Life by Lisa Cheney. Um, I, I liked them both for different reasons. There was really, I thought that one had a lot more background on certain things and then the other one had it on others. So the easier of the two would be the Lisa Cheney book. But even then, there's, it's still a pretty big book. But. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a, almost like a 400-page book. Rather than a lot of pictures, it has a lot of quotes. So I liked that. <laughs> There's also Chanel, A Woman of Her Own by Axel Madsen. Um, also almost a 400-page book. So you're not playing around. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> um, there is a book I wanted to like because it is um, – she's a respected biographer, Justine Picardy wrote this book, but it's in such a hard-to-find, or hard-to-read font that I found it, I kept putting it down because I, my brain got tired, and I liked it, and it was well-written, but the font, I hope. So if you could find Coco Chanel, The Legend in the Life, that doesn't upset you to read, that's a good content. <laughs> and yeah. then there's also that autobiography where a man took down her quotes and wrote things that she said by Paul Morand. It's called The Allure of Chanel and is kind of a stream of consciousness thing. So they're sitting on a porch and she's talking to him and he's just writing down what she's saying. And it is so full of fantasy memories. I'm telling you what. There are good quotes and I'll give one. My legend is based on two indestructible pillars. The first is that I've come up from goodness knows where, the music hall or the brothel. I'm sorry for that would have been more amusing. The second is that I'm Queen Midas. You know, no one has worked harder than me. Those who dream up legends are lazy. So I liked that. Ouch. But she made (laughs) some of the legend herself. So (laughs) that's why I didn't have that on my top four list is because I didn't know what to believe. Well, I like to read it because it was in her own words, and it's so uh-huh. rambling, and um, I just don't know, man. So I liked to read it. Also, it's really small, so you, it's not yeah, <laughs> heavy <true>. commitment. <laughs> there is. I actually found, I think it's a middle grade book, um, Coco Chanel, The Illustrated World of Fashion Icon by Megan Hess. It, it's a very strange book. There's lovely illustrations in it, um, although the text is definitely middle grade, but there's, you know, drawings. I thought that was good. And there's one children's book I liked. It was Different Like Coco by Elizabeth Matthews. And it was so fun. And I really liked the illustrations in this one, too, which I guess were done by her. There's no illustrator on here. Huh. Huh. Um, So as to movies, the big one is going to be Coco Before Chanel starring Audrey Tattoo. And I find it slow, slow, slow. Now, it won awards for costume design. Though for my time, if I'm going to give you two hours, I would rather watch this actress in Amelie. So please go just rent that. Oh, please. It's on Amazon Prime. 
Um, and if you haven't seen it, do that. I, you know, if you're laying there and you're running a fever, it's, it might be some people's favorite movie. I don't mean to insult it. I just found that it went very ponderously for me. Okay. Well, I will say this. Um, you couldn't because you have to read it unless you speak French. So you couldn't be sick for it. I had watched the Shirley MacLaine Coco Chanel first. So when I got to Coco before Chanel, I thought it was wonderful. <laughs> the production value was high. I thought she made a good Coco. Um, I liked the story. And um, again, it was probably because I had the Shirley MacLaine version first <laughs> to go by. And then um, Chanel Solitaire. With Rutger Hauer as Etienne Balson. I did not see that one. <laughs> okay, I have a four-word review. Would you like to hear it? Yes. Nope, nope, nopey, nope. <laughs> nopey, nope. Nopey, nope. I don't know. I just don't know. It had Timothy Dalton, James Bond, that was, as a boy. Mm -hmm. I just don't know. I just don't know. Like, one of the reviews, even on Rotten Tomatoes, called it unintentional comedy. Oh, whoops. Oops. There it is. I one thing that both of these movies did that was really bugging me is they called Adrienne her sister. This is my sister, Adrienne. Yeah, but you don't want to go. It's narrative economy. You don't want to go into oh, all that. Like, I know. I, yeah, this is my aunt who looks just like me and is the same age. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Branching out, if we're done with movies, I always go out on a limb and um, have the kind of background stuff. So do you have more direct links to Coco Chanel? Let's see. I have an interview with her on YouTube. It's in French, but you can hear her and see her mannerisms if you don't speak French. And I thought that was good. There's that bizarre Karl Lagerfeld film. Um, we had talked about part of this during the Wallace Simpson episode. It's just really bizarre. And Coco looks a lot like Edna Mode from The Incredibles for some reason. And I always think of her as Edith Head. That just kind of confused me. Plus, it was really bad. You know, he has done a lot of um, illustrations of Coco Chanel that are quite good, actually. Carl, Carl Lagerfeld. Like, he'll draw himself and her talking and she says things like, what travesty are you going to do now under my name? He should just stick to that. <laughs> He's a very good fashion designer. Okay. I actually have some websites and posts. Um, I have a history of the little black dress from Real Simple Magazine. It has lots of pictures. Um, it also has Josephine Baker and Wallace Simpson in their little black dresses. Yay. So I yeah, I know. I love it when this one crossed over a lot of episodes, I think. There's a New Yorker article from 1931 about Chanel and her uh, 31 Rue Cambon store. So it's kind of the press coverage at the time, which I thought was very interesting, an interesting perspective. And the Metropolitan Museum of Art has a post with article and photos of Chanel dresses through the years that I will link you to in the show notes. Well, then I have Martha, you know, the Martha Stewart visiting Coco Chanel's apartment on video. <laughs> so there's that. And then um, that Radiolab episode I love about the riot at the Rite of Spring. Mm -hmm. um, I'll link you to that, too, because the first time I heard that, that stuck in my mind so clearly, like classical music caused people to punch each other in the face. <laughs> I just love it. I can't even imagine <laughs> Um, and then, of course, the most famous pink Chanel suit in history, Jackie Kennedy's um, unfortunate witness to the assassination of JFK. Uh, I've got a link to that pink Chanel suit. The Snopes investigation, is Chanel a Nazi? 
Mm-hmm. And then um, the last thing I have is a little bit out there, but just in case you're wondering what the soundtrack was for my child's first seven years at bedtime, um, I am linking you to the YouTube video. And you might recognize that song. It's been the soundtrack to many calming scenes in movies. So anyway, <laughs> there's that too. Just in case anyone's curious, it really works, but you got to start them early. <laughs> That's funny. I don't really have anything else. And we will leave you then with a quote from Vogue magazine in 1959. If fashion has taken a turn to the woman, no one can deny that much of the impetus for that turn stems from Coco Chanel, the fierce, wise, wonderful, completely self-believing Chanel. The heady idea that a woman should be more important than her clothes and that it takes superb design to keep her looking that way. This idea, which has been almost for 40 years the fuel for the Chanel engine, has now permeated the fashion world forever. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. In addition to following us on social media, you should join the lounge. There is a handy button on the Facebook page that will take you to a place where you can hang out with everyone else that listens to the show and talk amongst yourselves. Just look for the History Chicks Podcast Lounge on Facebook. Also, important, important, check out our new podcast, Recapery, the History Chicks Media Emporium, where we are about to cover season two of The Crown on Netflix. We can't wait to see it. And we would love to see you over at the Recapery. And the end song is Cool Kids by Natalie Walker, courtesy of music.mevio.com. So